The destruction of a major dam in southern Ukraine has caused devastating flooding as a Ukrainian military offensive is now underway. U.S. government officials immediately blamed Russia in a logic-defying narrative which has now been repeated endlessly by U.S. corporate media. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to another episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking again with Walter Smolarik. He is the editor of Liberation News. Walter, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me. Glad to be here. Walter, the carnage in southern Ukraine is terrible to see. Villages, big and small, flooded, huge amounts of damage. We don't know when it's going to end. The dam has not been completely broken. Big parts of it have been broken. Both sides accused each other of causing the wreckage. John Kirby, who is the Admiral Kirby, who was the spokesperson for the National Security Council in a press conference earlier today, was asked by a reporter whose point I think was quite obvious. He said, well, Nord Stream 1 and 2, the Russian gas pipelines were destroyed and the U.S. said that Russia destroyed them. Now this dam, which was under the control of the Russian forces, has been destroyed, and the U.S. is saying, again, that Russia is to blame. Why would Russia be destroying its own property? Anyway, a fairly important and good question. Right. I mean, this is so important. I mean, there are so many important questions to ask that are being ignored. I mean, as you said, you know, why would Russia destroy something that it already controls? Why would it destroy something that washes away? I mean, reportedly, of course, there's a fog of war element here, but reportedly washes away Russia's own defenses and military fortifications and minefields. Uh, it's very important infrastructure-wise for the water supply to the Crimean Peninsula, which is uh, part of Russia. It was annexed by Russia in 2014. So, Brian, I mean, you wouldn't know any of this by just reading the headline in the corporate media or, you know, listening to the reports on CNN. I mean, what are your thoughts on how this narrative is being concocted, spun, repeated in, in the corporate media? Yeah, I think we have to understand that the war has a military side. It also has a very critically important information side. Of course, there's the old cliche that the first casualty in war is the truth, and that's undoubtedly true. There's also the fog of war where it's hard to discern exactly what happened in the confusion and literal fog of war. But we have very clear narratives, propaganda narratives being outlined by the Pentagon, by the U.S. government, by NATO. And those are being echoed faithfully by the U.S. corporate media because it's extremely important that the people of the United States who are already turning against the proxy war with Russia, the war being waged in Ukraine that is really funded, financed, and the weapons provided by the United States government at taxpayers' expense. As people in the United States become more and more skeptical or cynical about the war or turn against the war, it's extremely important for the U.S. government to keep demonizing Russia to the max so that parts of the population that might otherwise be critics and opponents of the war will either be sort of scared to speak out or not know how to speak out. Again, we saw this with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. I mean, the Soviet Union and then later Russia, the anchoring Republic of the Soviet Union, which became an independent entity after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, spent decades and hundreds of billions of dollars to build pipelines that would provide inexpensive natural gas produced and, and harvested in Russia to Western Europe, meaning Western Europe, traditional U.S. allies, could have economic integration earlier with the Soviet Union and now with Russia. Why would the Russians destroy their, their own pipelines after having spent so much time and blood and sweat and prestige 
Why would they destroy it? But that was the narrative that was endlessly repeated by the United States when it was actually destroyed last fall. Then Seymour Hersh, who we've talked about, Walter, who was a you know a stellar investigative journalist, the journalist who revealed the Malay massacre in 1968, where U.S. infantry forces massacred more than 500 Vietnamese men, women, and children, babies and their grandparents alike. He revealed the truth of that war crime, and he was considered to be like the premier investigative journalist. He wrote a major story saying, look, the Pentagon, and he named actually a unit in the Pentagon, did the destruction of Nord Stream 2. And he was treated just like a crazy person. He was like completely discredited. He was either ignored or silenced or treated as a crazy person. Again, Walter, it's because the narrative here is so important. A lot of people will turn against the word. If the American government sent American troops to fight Russians in Ukraine, our demonstrations, as we have said in the past, wouldn't be in the thousands or even tens of thousands. They'd be in the hundreds of thousands. But even minus a lot of Americans dying in this terrible, awful war, people are turning against the war. And I think that accounts for it. I want to mention one other thing, Walter. When you bomb and destroy a dike or a dam and flood whole regions, it is a crime against humanity. It is a war crime. It falls within the category of war crimes that have been designated as such, starting with the Nuremberg trials against the Nazis at the end of World War II, ratified by the UN Convention on Genocide and War Crimes. War crimes have three elements, crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. When you bomb a dam or a dike and flood the homes and, and villages of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, that's a crime. And so if the US government or its allies in Ukraine are destroying a dam that's under Russian control, and by the way, Crimea, which does not have an organic landmass connection to the Russian mainland and is located in the Black Sea, is dependent on this dam for water. And the Ukrainian government basically stopped all water going to Crimea after 2014 when Russia regained this area of this control. They set up a landmass bridge to Crimea, which is a Russian-speaking part. I mean, it was a Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, historically part of Russia, only transferred to Ukraine in 1954 by Nikita Khrushchev when Ukraine and Russia were one country. So Russia built this land bridge to Crimea, but it also needed this dam in order to supply water to Crimea. So now, even though Crimea is still has water in the reservoirs, if this damage continues to be as it is or expands, which is certainly possible, Crimea could lose its water. Why on earth would Russia do that? So we have an illogical allegation against Russia about a crime, a war crime, a crime against humanity. So the U.S. has to divert attention away from this reality. And I want to just finish, Walter, with one other point. I think people need this for a historical memory. The U.S. has a history of bombing dikes and dams. Jane Fonda went to Vietnam in 1972. So did about 300 other American peace activists and civil rights folks. Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General, went. And they documented that the U.S. during 1972 was carrying out carpet bombing of Vietnamese, North Vietnamese dikes and dams, flooding entire areas. And North Vietnam had a very sophisticated system of dikes that had been created you know, over long periods of time. The U.S. devastated them. And then Jane Fonda and Ramsey Clark said, look, the U.S. is bombing these dikes. And we're there. We can see it. We have evidence of it. They took video of it. They showed the images of craters from B-52 bombers with 2,000-pound bombs that were dropped on or very close to these dikes and dams. And the U.S. corporate media said, oh, that's Hanoi Jane. You can't believe Jane Fonda. She's a puppet of the North Vietnamese. Well, actually, she was telling the truth. So I think the media story is a big part of this question. If we just look at the military struggle and ignore the fact that the U.S. corporate media, which says it's the free press, is acting as basically the press agency of the Ukrainian military and of the Pentagon, people won't really know how to see the news, understand the news, interpret the news 
and understand how the news, even if it's not all lies, is designed to create a particular narrative that makes Ukraine look good and also makes the Pentagon look good and makes the Russians look bad. And Walter, I mean, a perfect example of this kind of media narrative is how the U.S. media is treating the fact that Ukrainian military forces, again, armed and financed and paid for by U.S. taxpayers, are dressed up with Nazi emblems and Nazi icons. I mean, I'm sure you saw this article in the New York Times and other media about how the U.S. media is treating the fact that the Ukrainian military is literally wearing fascist Nazi, pro-Nazi iconography on its uniform as it wages war. And instead of denouncing it as Nazism, the U.S. media, including the New York Times, says, oh, this is these create troubling images. Did you see that article? Yeah, that's right, Brian. I mean, let me actually read a little bit from that article because I, I totally agree. I mean, it's just so absolutely ridiculous. So the, the headline, the title of the article is Nazi symbols on Ukraine's front lines highlight thorny issues of history. Subheading, troops' use of patches bearing Nazi emblems risks fueling Russian propaganda and spreading imagery that the West has spent a half century trying to eliminate. The photographs and their deletions highlight the Ukrainian military's complicated relationship with Nazi imagery, a relationship forged both under Soviet and German occupation during World War II. I mean, pretty amazing that the New York Times would have the gall to try to to try to downplay, to minimize, to soften swastikas, imagery that was worn by SS concentration camp guards. You know, Nazi occult imagery is also very popular in a lot of these units. I mean, Brian, how, how do you react to that? I mean, I just thought this article was so sickening. Yeah, I just want to repeat the headline. Everybody should like really read these words or hear these words and think about how the New York Times, which is You know, it's a carefully crafted set of words to be able to describe a reality, which is that not only are the Ukrainian forces using Nazi iconography, Nazi symbols, Nazi emblems, but it shows that they're for Nazism, they're for fascism, which means they are fascists. And part of the Russian argument for why the Russian needed to intervene was Putin said they were going to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. I don't think that's actually happened because, if anything, the fascist stronghold, the fascist influence in Ukraine has grown, not diminished, as a consequence of the Russian military intervention. And instead of demilitarizing Ukraine, if anything, Ukraine is more militarized now than it's ever been in the history of the existence of Ukraine, and certainly perhaps the most militarized place on the planet at the moment. But aside from whether the Russian objective succeeded, Putin was not wrong about the fact that there was a very strong Nazi influence in Ukraine. And these words, Nazi symbols on Ukraine's front lines, highlight thorny issues of history. Well, when did, when did the history of fighting Nazism become thorny, like meaning contentious, meaning like debatable? I mean, 400,000 U.S. soldiers died fighting against Nazi Germany, right? More than a million had disabling injuries and wounds. 27 million Soviet citizens died fighting fascism. The death camps all over Eastern and Central Europe organized by Nazism and that were liberated by the Soviet Red Army. I mean, the slogan after that was, never again, we can never let this happen again. Fascism will never return. It became illegal to advocate for fascism within Germany, especially inside of East Germany, where the actual fascist forces were cleared out of the government. In in West Germany, which is under the control of the United States, the Nazis were basically rehabilitated. The top leaders of the Nazis were executed or imprisoned, but most of the Nazi leadership, the officer corps, remained intact and was put to work by the U.S. during the Cold War against East Germany and against the Soviet Union, against communism. As a matter of fact, Nazis, German Nazis, really were the leaders of the U.S. NASA space program, including the the Man on the Moon campaign, Werner von Braun, Operation Paperclip. The U.S. brought more than a thousand Nazi scientists 
to the United States secretly and worked with them against the Soviet Union. But publicly, at least, we were all taught that fascism was an evil that could never, ever, ever be allowed to come back to Europe or anywhere. And now when the Ukrainian military funded, financed, armed, and really led by the Pentagon, and the Pentagon has essential command and control over the Ukrainian military, when they're using Nazi emblems to fight against Russia, it now becomes a thorny issue. And the troop use of these fascist patches and Nazi emblems, according to the New York Times, risks what? What's the big risk? That it risks exposing them as Nazis and as fascists? No. The big risk is that it will fuel Russian propaganda and spreading imagery that the West has spent a half century trying to eliminate, meaning that Western countries, in fact, are supporting fascism. People have to really wrap their heads around this. You know, there could be very strongly divided opinion about whether or not Russia should have intervened in Ukraine when it did, or whether it should have continued by other means to fight against the NATO buildup against Russia. Those are debatable issues. Certainly, if it had not been for the NATO buildup in the attempt to incorporate Ukraine into NATO and the attempt to use Ukraine as a staging ground for advanced nuclear and conventional weapons, NATO weapons and U.S. weapons that targeted Russia and that would have been placed right on Russia's border, that long border with Ukraine. Certainly, if the U.S. had not done that, there would not be a war. That's a given. This was an avoidable war. But whether you agree or disagree whether Russia's military intervention was the right response to NATO's expansion, I think we can all agree that what the U.S. is doing is promoting this war, trying to shield and camouflage the fact that fascists are playing a very important role on the Ukrainian side, and hiding the fact that the NATO military mission, if it were to succeed as it's trying to, because they, the U.S. is all about the counteroffensive right now, all about defeating Russia. Even the columnists who say we have to find an end game in the war in Ukraine, what they're talking about is having a crushing military defeat of Russia. Those people don't care about Ukrainians. They don't care about Ukrainian sovereignty. They have a larger geostrategic agenda which is all tied up with NATO expansion, which is to weaken Russia permanently because the U.S. doesn't want any competitor to its hegemonic control over Western and Central and Eastern Europe. So I think when we talk about the media, we have to understand that the media is a political beast. And in order to understand what this political beast is doing, what its propaganda is about, you have to understand the political goals of U.S. imperialism and NATO in launching this proxy war. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. I mean, one other reason to throw in there that we should be so deeply concerned about the support, the military support that these Nazi forces are getting in Ukraine. I mean, think about the, the huge numbers of fanatical fascists, of fanatical Nazis, of lovers of Hitler, who now are receiving free military training, who are now receiving guns and bullets and bombs and experience in using those weapons, and, and who knows, maybe much more advanced weapons than that. I mean, these are political forces that are responsible for terrorist acts all around the world, and their military capacity is being dramatically expanded. I mean, there aren't only Ukrainian Nazis fighting in Ukraine. I mean, it's kind of this like international fascist crusade where people are traveling from other countries. I mean, the, the blowback from this could be huge and felt for years and years to come tremendously dangerous. I think, Brian, that if people in the United States really knew that their hundred plus billion dollars that Congress has allocated to underwrite this proxy war is being used to a significant extent to put guns and bullets and bombs in the hands of Nazis, actual literal Nazis, a lot more people would demand an end to that policy, would join the anti-war movement. I mean, this is part of what you're talking about, right? The role of the information war in the corporate media. Yes, and I, I want you to elaborate on something too, Walter, because I know Liberation News and your own writing has covered this a great deal. There's a lot of confusion inside the U.S. political arena right now about who's anti-war, what forces are actually anti-war, what forces are telling the truth to the American people about the war. Historically, during the Vietnam War, 
there was a, a split within the American ruling class about the advisability of continuing the war because big sections of the ruling class in America knew the war could not be won. It was going to go on and on and on. It was fueling internal strife, almost like a domestic civil war. The anti-war movement was getting so big by 1968, 69, especially by 1970. So a section of the ruling class wanted the war to end. And so you saw in the U.S. media stories talking about how terrible the war was and how good the anti-war movement was. And suddenly the anti-war movement on the ground became bigger and bigger and bigger, like almost overnight starting in 1969 with the two moratoriums that took place in Washington, which up until that time were the biggest protest demonstrations in American history. Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more than a million, came out on a single day to say no to the war. So the ruling class was divided and the media, you know, became a sort of a messenger for an anti-war voice. There was also a, a trend within American politics, which was maybe connected to a wing, a liberal wing of the Democratic Party. They were called the doves, the people who wanted to have better relations with the Soviet Union, wanted to end the Cold War, who were afraid of nuclear war, wanted to normalize relations with Cuba. They were the doves. There were the doves who wanted peace, generally speaking, in a very, not using class language or Marxist language, but generally for peace, a liberal program. And then on the other side were the conservatives who were the gung-ho, you know, let's keep fighting militarism all the way, never give up, let's use nuclear weapons against Vietnam. So American politics was roughly divided between doves and hawks. Now, here we are in 2023, and there's no liberal bourgeoisie at all that's speaking out against the war. I mean, Henry Kissinger, notorious war criminal from, from the Vietnam War, He's even considered sort of a liberal voice now, which is certainly ironic given his historical role, because he says, well, Russia has real national interests and we can't think that they're going to go away and it's better to have peace than war and let's negotiate. So Henry Kissinger now appears amongst all the pantheon of political figures as somewhat more reasonable, but he's no dove. He's a war criminal. But all the people who would have historically been liberal doves and connected maybe to the Democratic Party are either completely silent or the biggest cheerleaders for the U.S. war drive against Russia and China. On the other side, and this is part of the irony of American politics, you have far right wingers who are really semi-fascist, some of them, but who are demagogically appealing to the U.S. working class, which Republican and conservative Democrat and liberal alike, the rank and file doesn't want endless war. They're now taking what appears to be an anti-war position. And so you have Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Goetz and, and others saying, we shouldn't spend another dime on the Ukraine war. And you know they were using that mantra during the debt ceiling negotiations. And Kevin McCarthy, who was the leader, the Speaker of the House for the Republicans, he was also sort of publicly sounding like he was against the war in Ukraine too. And Trump, when he's campaigning, he says, I'll end the war. The war in Ukraine will end the in day one of my next Trump administration. But when you look at the facts of what the right wing, the Freedom Caucus, the right wing, the Republican Party are doing, they're actually no different from the Democrats when it comes to the Ukraine war. Let's just talk about how some of this tomfoolery or demagoguery is happening, how it's being presented, because it is fooling a lot of people. It's fooling a lot of people who think the Republicans might actually end the war. So some people, including some people who have sort of strayed from the left, but think we have to end the war in Ukraine, they'll think, well, if the Republicans will end it, as they suggest or sort of suggest they might, maybe we should be for the right-wing Republicans. Anyway, I think it's really important to expose this new political constellation and phenomena in American politics. This is totally crucial. The idea that these far right-wing elite anti-worker politicians are in favor of peace, that they're pro-peace, that's completely an act. It's completely an act designed to capitalize on the fact that there, there is this vacuum in American politics, that a lot of people are against war. And so these political forces, like you said, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, 
posture as being anti-war, pro-peace, in order to advance their own political careers, but the actions that they take have nothing to do with peace. I mean, I think that the principal example that proves that is that all of these people are for a massive Pentagon budget, right? They, they don't want to cut the Pentagon's budget. They want to maintain U.S. militarism, the U.S. war machine's capacity to wage war and any corner of the planet. They don't want to close down the 800 military bases abroad. They want to completely maintain the United States as an empire. And a lot of them, you know, even if they might be critical of U.S. government policy towards Russia, are more hardline than normal for bourgeois politicians, which is like a high bar, right? They're more aggressive than most of them when it comes to China, when it comes to agitating for ultra-aggressive policies towards China that will inevitably lead to a war between the U.S. and China. These are the loudest voices calling for that, these far right-wing, you know, quote-unquote anti-war people. It's all complete nonsense. I, since you brought up Kevin McCarthy, I want to I want to give one other example because this presentation, this demagoguery relies on some pretty complicated tricks. So Kevin McCarthy's stated position, and there, there was this big article in the New York Times about it today, is that he is opposed to a supplemental bill, a supplemental spending bill for military aid to Ukraine. The money that's already been legislated for the U.S. to give to Ukraine for the war effort is starting to run out. Congress is going to have to allocate more money soon, like in the coming weeks and months. And so McCarthy is saying, oh, no, no, I'm against the war. I'm not for spending. I'm not for passing an additional spending bill. But what he's actually saying, right, his next sentence is, I'm for funding the war through the normal budget appropriations process. So not a special bill, but through the normal passage of the budget. This is very important because of something that came out of the debt ceiling deal called pay as you go or pay go. It basically is a rule that the Democrats and Biden agreed to implement where any additional spending, any new government spending has to be offset by corresponding cuts in other parts of the budget. They have to cut the budget for other things. So what McCarthy is actually saying is not I won't fund the war. He's saying, I will only fund the war in return for more austerity. I will only fund the war if you cut more money from essential social services that give working people just a little bit of relief. Only if you make the problems worse at home will I allow you to spend more money on this imperialist proxy war in Ukraine that imperils the entire world. So it's all for show. It's all for show. Let's talk about how the war could end. I mentioned in the beginning, Walter, that Brett Stevens, who is a regular op-ed writer, opinion columnist for the New York Times, has an article from June 6th. The headline is, An Endgame for Ukraine. And I saw that and I was like, oh, so maybe some of the conservatives are contemplating that there actually needs to be an end to the wars. An endgame for Ukraine. But then I'm looking at what he says. It says, we can start by listing the ways in which it shouldn't meaning it shouldn't end. The first is the one suggested last year by President Emmanuel Macron of France, who said, we must not humiliate Russia, close quote, so that the day when the fighting stops, we can build an exit ramp through diplomatic means, close quote. That's Emmanuel Macron saying, let's not humiliate Russia. There needs to be an exit ramp. There needs to be not just the end of the war, but an anticipated period where countries could be living together. At that time, according to Brett Stevens, not humiliate Russia, close quote, was code for allowing Russia to preserve its ill-gotten gains while it was on the offensive. This is wrong. A crushing and unmistakable defeat is precisely what is necessary to put an end to Russia's imperialistic ambitions. I mean, this is the end game. This is not the end game, Walter, because one, U.S. imperialism is the country that has 800 military bases around the world. It's the U.S. that fought in Korea, Vietnam, invaded the Dominican Republic, invaded Panama, bombed Yugoslavia in 1995 and 1999 invaded Afghanistan, invaded Iraq a second time, bombed Libya in 2011. I mean, it's U.S. imperialism that has this global military reach. The Russians are not fighting in Iraq or the Middle East. 
They're not fighting in Southeast Asia. They're fighting at the Russian-Ukraine border. And of course, as we all know, and anyone who pays attention to history knows, for many, many, many centuries, Ukraine was part of Russia, was part of the Russian Empire. Ukraine only becomes a state with some independent status in 1922 as part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So it's not a faraway imperialist war. You might, again, one can agree or disagree with the tactic, but the idea that this is a big imperialistic scheme of Russia, I know some parts of the left, some political communist parties also have this position that this is a contest between the two imperialisms. It's odd that some people in the communist left could have the same sort of line as Brett Stevens, that somehow the war is a competition with Russian imperialism. But aside from all of that, when you think about this as the end game, that's not an end game. Because what would it take to have a crushing military defeat for Russia? What would it take? I mean, you know, von Clausewitz, the great Prussian military strategist, when he talks about how wars end, you know, how one side wins a war, it's like you've defeated their army, you occupy their, their land, and you defeat their will to resist. You overcome the will to resist. As long as there's a will to resist, the war will continue. Russia's will is never going to be crushed here because the Russian government has made what happens, at least in the eastern part of Ukraine, existential. And so has NATO, in fact, made what happens in Ukraine existential to the existence of Russia as we know it. So this is no recipe for peace, but it shows a lot about the actual mentality of American policymakers and pundits. But he's not speaking for himself. This is part of the bigger chorus of voices that are shaping or trying to shape public opinion. That, that's right. I mean, this sort of fight to the finish mentality, strategy, political current, that's not a recipe for an endgame. It's the recipe for catastrophically dangerous escalation. And we've already seen so much escalation from the U.S. side since this war broke out. You know, immediately the United States began sending military aid and, and for many years leading up to this had been equipping and training the Ukrainian military. But, you know, the escalation of the type of equipment that's being transferred has broken every taboo, every limit that the U.S. war planners have set for themselves. You know, if we think back maybe about a year or six months ago, you know, the debate or the conversation was all about the HIMARS missile system, right? This is like an advanced missile system that the Ukrainians wanted, the Ukrainian military wanted, the ultra militarist hardliners in the West wanted to ship, but was seen as being too dangerous, too much of a gamble because it would, um, you know, not only give the Ukrainian armed forces a significant advantage on the battlefield, but also increase their capability to strike targets inside of Russia because these are relatively longer range missiles. The U.S. broke that taboo. They sent the HIMARS over there. That's now a central part of the Ukrainian war effort. Then came the debate over tanks, right? The ultra hardliners, the people like Brett Stevens started demanding that massive numbers of tanks be transferred to Ukraine. A lot of people, including a lot of imperialists, were like, that is a step too far. I, I don't know about this. But that, too, was eventually swept to the side. And German Leopard tanks and British Challenger tanks and American Abrams tanks are now on the battlefield in large numbers. And now and now jets, jet fighters are, are the most recent example of this. That was also seen as something that would just be too far. It would be too much of a risk to see you know, what Russia would do in response. And so we can't transfer jets. But now, just ahead of the most recent G7 summit, the United States announced, yes, in fact, they would be putting together an international coalition of countries to not only give jets to Ukraine, but also train their pilots how to fly it. I mean, the, the line between, you know, who's a direct participant in the war and who's not is being increasingly blurred. And that raises the prospect of a direct clash between the United States or NATO and Russia. I mean, Brian, we, we can't overstate the importance, the grave danger of a situation like this. Yeah, I feel like the socialist program and our message is something of a broken record at this point because we've been saying from the beginning, the logic of the war, given the, the U.S. orientation, the logic is towards escalation. And we also, I also call Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, all of them, just a bunch of rich kid brats 
who've never wanted for anything, never suffered for anything. You know, so for them, it's all gaming and showing how tough they are. But, you know, for the people in Ukraine, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. But they're like, yeah, we need to have more war. We need to have a crushing defeat of Russia. This is the geostrategic end goal to diminish the sort of slipped position of American empire by weakening American empire's main major country rivals, meaning Russia and China. So that's the goal. We don't care about anything else. Our feigned concern for human beings is just that feigned concern. It doesn't really mean anything. And I don't think they really contemplate what could happen. I don't think they really contemplate what could happen. You know, and the, the people who are the wiser heads inside the U.S. imperialist establishment, as the war lobby continues to sound louder and louder and louder, at all moments, those more reasonable voices basically disappear. I think it's really important for socialists, anti-war folks and socialists in the United States to have a clear appreciation of the politics of war in the United States because the, the reasonable people are being pushed to the side, the reasonable imperialists, meaning the ones who exercise caution. So let's just go back and think about this trajectory along the lines of what you've just done with the the HIMAR missiles, then the M1 Abram tanks, and then the F-16 fighter jets, which is bringing U.S. military equipment right into direct confrontation with Russia. So Russia, at a certain point, if it feels it's not winning or it's losing, will say, this is an American war. You're doing this to us, and we have a right to retaliate. That's the logic of the escalation. But let's go back. Obama, in 2014, after the Victoria Newlands and the the neoconservatives, the more aggressive wing of the Obama administration was promoting the coup against the Yanukovych government in Ukraine in 2014. And Yanukovych was overthrown by, you know, basically fascist stormtroopers on February 22nd, 2014. After that, President Obama said, look, we're not going to send Javelin missiles to Ukraine, Javelin anti-tank missiles, because they'll use them in the eastern part of the country and it'll be an escalation with Russia. So Obama said, no, he said, let's not do that. He didn't allow the sending of Javelin missiles. So he was the voice of caution, right? And by the way, earlier in the Libya war, before it started, before Obama surrendered, he and Robert Gates, who's Secretary of Defense, who's certainly no liberal, they were both like not really in favor of the bombing of Libya. They used the language, the U.S. doesn't have any strategic national interests in North Africa there in Libya. But they they gave in. They gave in. They went along with the war lobby. Hillary Clinton, the Washington Post, they were deriding Obama as the, quote, passive president. So Obama, at the end of his administration, says no to the Javelin missiles. Then Trump is elected, and Trump is impeached, right? And what was he impeached for? Delaying the sending of Javelin missiles by about three weeks because Zelensky wasn't going along or he didn't feel as Zelensky was going along with his effort to attack Hunter Biden, who was obviously corrupt and obviously been put on the payroll of this, you know, Ukrainian oil gas company, even though he knew nothing about oil and gas. That was a favor done to the Obama administration after the coup d'etat in 2014. Biden was obviously corrupt and Trump wanted information to get Biden as part of his narrow electoral goals to, you know, win the next election. And so he held up sending Javelin missiles for three weeks, and the U.S. Congress impeached him for that. That's what he's impeached for. So in Libya, when there were voices that said maybe bombing Libya is not a good idea, and obviously we can see now Libya is completely a mess, a complete devastated mess in North Africa, that got brushed away. Trump delayed sending Javelin missiles. They, that got brushed away when the U.S. said, well, we, we won't send him our missiles. Then that got brushed away. Then the tanks, now the F-16s. Step by step, the reasonable voices within the U.S. ruling class always get pushed to the side and they surrender. Like, where's Obama now? Do you hear him saying anything like, let's de-escalate? Like that was his actual position when he was, you know, a mild part of his position after the coup. You don't hear him at all. So my point is, socialists, 
and anti-imperialists and genuine anti-war people are making a grave mistake if we pitch our message, our anti-war message, in the hopes that we will attract some wing of the U.S. ruling class to be a break on escalating war, escalating imperialism. The fact of the matter is the people who are cautious or prudent or somewhat of a break, they're so weak, they're so spineless, and the general direction of U.S. imperialism is so aggressive that they represent nothing. If you really want to be against the Ukraine war, don't look to the Democrats, obviously. Don't look to Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Matt Goetz or Kevin McCarthy. They're just demagogues lying. They're really 100% about the U.S. military. We have to build a working class movement an independent socialist anti-war movement that understands that these wars are not simply mistakes, they're not the mistakes of mistaken politicians, that these are wars of a system of imperialism. And in order to really end the danger of war, including global war, including major power conflict, we need a new system. We always say that at the beginning of the socialist program, but we actually have to be fighting against war in the context of organizing against the capitalist system, which in our era is the system of imperialism. Yeah, Brian, I mean, I, I think another example of that constant escalation, that trend towards more and more and more aggressive action by U.S. imperialism that you pointed out would be the expansion of NATO since the end of the Cold War. I mean, this too was something that was initially a topic for debate. Should NATO expand into Eastern Europe? after the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the allied socialist countries in Eastern Europe. And there were, I mean, one, the United States promised that it would not do that, right? It promised Gorbachev as the Soviet Union was beginning to break up, that it would not expand into Eastern Europe. And then even among, you know, the, the planners of, you know, U.S. foreign and military policy, there was a debate because the other option would be to essentially bring Russia into the West, quote unquote, right, into the sort of international order. NATO even had a policy that I, I believe was called uh, or a program called Partners for Peace, where it would cooperate with Russia. You know, th this was like a real current of thought within the ruling class. But clearly what we saw over the preceding years is that that was completely abandoned in favor of a policy of limitless expansion of the NATO military alliance right up to Russia's borders, right? Right up to the borders of, of Russia. You know, more and more countries were being incorporated into this military alliance that was created to wage war against Russia, to wage actually a, an apocalyptic third world war against Russia. You know, that too, and this was completely predictable and was predicted by, again, mainstream establishment ruling class figures, th this would inevitably lead to conflict with Russia because Russia would not just allow this to happen, sit back and passively allow it to happen. I mean, Brian, going back to what we were talking about the media, you know, anytime a country reacts to this policy of, of aggression, warmongering, expansion of military alliances, that itself is being presented as the act of aggression in the first place. That's devoid of all context, stripped of all context. And the corporate media says that any response to this Western US policy is imperialism. I mean, it's a remarkable sleight of hand, isn't it? Let's talk, Walter, as we get close to the end here about what we've described as the new era in global politics, the Russian invasion, into Ukraine, February 22nd, they call it the special military operation. That signaled the end of the era that began with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, which was an era that the US imperialist ruling class thought would last forever. They thought from now on, the US was king of the hill. No one was gonna be able to challenge the US. The white paper that was developed you know, by Wolfowitz and the other gang of neocons in 1991, 1992, was that the U.S. would continue to expand its military even in the face of having no global rival like the Soviet Union. They would expand the military because the goal was to prevent any other country from even aspiring to regional, a regional or global challenge to U.S hegemony and domination. It was pretty much explicit. This is the white paper, the famous white paper that was leaked to the New York Times. And that era went for 30 years, which, you know, if you were 20 years old in 1991, that would be most of your life. But in the, from a historical point of view, 30 years is nothing. 30 years is like a, literally like a second in terms of a longer historical perspective. So the second 
of unipolar domination has ended because invariably a country like Russia, which is a major country and was targeted for weakening by U.S. imperialism, won't commit suicide. The Russians were not willing to commit suicide, which was the demand of NATO. Commit suicide, meaning not really absolutely wipe Russia off the map, but wipe Russia as we now know it off the map so that Russia would be so weak. Right now, Russia is a big country, even though it had a huge economic contraction after the collapse of the USSR, still a big country. It's the biggest landmass of any country in the world. It has vast natural resources. It spreads all the way from Europe to the Pacific Ocean. A country that size, that's independent of U.S. imperialism, will invariably assert its independence in the face of U.S. aggression. And now Russia has done that. And even though Putin was part of the G7, they made it part of the G8. He was a ceremonial you know, dinner guest at the G7 dinners, which are like just disgusting imperialist get-togethers anyway. But he was allowed in. I mean, China wasn't, but Russia was. So they were, for a period, there was kind of a flattery of Putin. Remember George W. Bush, when he was talking about Putin, he said, I looked into his soul and I saw, I can't remember, he saw a beautiful man or a wonderful man. I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. Ah, that's right. Yeah, George W. Bush, with his amazing perspicacity, looked into Putin's soul and he liked what he saw. Well, anyway, that period of flattery certainly ended as NATO expanded into Georgia in 2008. And when NATO did that, Russian troops also moved into Georgia, a clear harbinger of what was coming. Russia was not going to allow Georgia or Ukraine to be incorporated into a U.S. military alliance that threatened Russia's existential interests. So now we have a situation where Russia decided to invade and the U.S., thought, wow, we really got Russia in a corner. We're going to impose these draconian economic sanctions. We're going to evict them from SWIFT, from the global financial transactional market. We're going to shutter their banks. We're going to seize their assets. We're going to make their economy scream, in the words of Henry Kissinger, as they had done to Iran in 1953 or Chile during the Allende period between 70 and 73. We're going to, now we've got them. They figured we we put Putin in a corner if he invades, which they were predicting, then we've got him. We've got him. We can evict him from the world economy. But instead, Walter, what's happened in the last year is that Russia has not been devastated. It's been harmed economically, but it's not been devastated. And big parts of the world, including traditional U.S. allies in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, countries in Africa, India, other parts of Asia, they're actually clearly welcoming the idea that there will be a multipolar world, that there won't be simply one power. Not because they have a shared ideology, shared values. They don't want to be sort of on their knees having to bow before U.S. imperialism or be sanctioned or invaded or occupied or the target of targeted assassinations of their leaders. They don't want that. And regardless of whether it's a Saudi monarchy or a socialist government somewhere or a religious, like a Hindu-based government, Hindu nationalism like in India, these countries don't want to be the targets of endless U.S. aggression. And obviously, they've expanded their trade with Russia. And it's a new world. It's not a stable world, and it's not certainly a socialist world, which is what we're fighting for, but it's definitely a new world. Yeah, yeah, it is, Brian. And, you know, how this is being sold to the public, how it's being presented, and how consciousness around this issue of the changing shape of world politics is being is being molded, is that you should be very afraid of this, right? That's what the public in the United States is being told, that the diminution of U.S. imperial power, that if Wall Street or the Pentagon become less powerful relative to other countries, that's something that will have a profound impact on your life. You know, to essentially think in terms of, you know, national interests, you know, the good of America and its standing in the world. But that ignores the fact that the interests of workers here in the United States are completely 
opposite and opposed to the goals and interests and desires of the people who make the decisions that shape how the government operates, what actions the military take. I mean, the, the big Wall Street bankers and corporations and the military industrial complex, they're very afraid about the rise of multipolarity, the fact that there are other countries that are able to have a significant impact on the shape of world affairs. But there's nothing to fear from the point of view of workers in the United States. I mean, if anything, that means that the United States will have to pull back from its extremely expensive imperial ventures all around the world. And maybe some of those resources can finally be directed towards meeting human needs, addressing the urgent, dire social crises that exist all across this country. Yeah, indeed. Uh, those are well-spoken points, Walter. And and for people who feel like, you know, you can't pay your doctor's bill, you're $500 away from being completely bankrupted, one out of every two people in the United States who declared bankruptcy last year it was because they couldn't pay a doctor's bill, rents going through the roof, homeowners in California are now no longer going to be able to get insurance because capitalist insurance companies are pulling out of California in the face of wildfires and extreme weather events. Where I am right now in New York City, the sky is filled with gray, yellow dust from wildfires in eastern Canada. The events in the public schools are being canceled in New York City, all the way down to Washington, D.C., public events, outdoor events being canceled. When you look at these multiple cascading social, political, economic, and environmental crises, and then you think the priorities of our government, what's well, our government in the, our own ruling class's government, when you think of their priorities towards war and more war and major power conflict, you realize that they are not only wrong and mistaken, but they're a danger and a dire threat to our species, to the human race. And it makes it impossible to meet needs that are easily meetable, like the problem of you know, rent and the problem of healthcare and the, the need to create mitigating factors for climate catastrophe. We can do those things. Society can do those things. But as long as this capitalist system is in place, in power, holds the political power, including domination over the media, their priorities are going to be war, not human beings. Walter Smolarek, thank you so much for joining us here on The Socialist Program. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.